Welcome to the Jay Martin Show. If you're new to the show, my name is Jay. I'm an investor. I'm here looking for the smartest home for my cash. If that sounds like you, then I think you're going to like what we do here. My guest today is Luke Groman, founder of Forest for the Trees. And we cover a lot of ground in today's conversation, but a key bucket that we talk about is the red lines. Red lines for Russia, red lines for China, and red lines for the United States. Lines that, if crossed, would trigger us moving into some kind of a new world order. So fascinating conversation. I know you're going to love this. As always, if you enjoy my style, I publish a weekly essay every Sunday on Substack. It's called the J. Martin Letter. Easy to find. I'll put a link right beneath this piece of content if you want to subscribe. Over 35,000 investors tell me they love it. You might love it too. So check that out. Now here is Luke Groman. Enjoy. All right. Here I am with Luke Groman. Luke, it's great to have you back on the program. I appreciate you making the time today. Thanks for having me back on, Jay. It's great to be here. Well, let's start with a big picture question, and then I'm just going to pull on some threads. If you were to grade the overall economic health of the United States right now, um, how would you rank? How would you rank that? Uh, I don't know. It's probably it's probably a C. Maybe it's a C minus. Um, you know, the challenge is, is that they've got a final exam coming up in the next week, proverbially. And, uh, the final exam is worth 90% of their grade for the semester. So if they screw that up, they'll fail. And if they succeed, then they'll pass. What's the final exam? Get the dollar down a lot. Okay. So consequences of failing that mission to get the dollar down. Uh, what we saw in August and September and into October on steroids, dollar up, treasury yields up, even in a recession, uh, risk assets down, uh, wash, rinse, repeat until they get the dollar down. And what's your confidence level that they can accomplish this? Uh, fairly high, actually. Um, to my eyes, it seems like they're, they began moving in this direction about a month ago. Um, maybe a little less. And, um, I think both, I, I think they have the proper motivation, uh, to do so. <laughs> I think, I think they're starting to see that they have a test and that if they fail the test, uh, what the circumstances are or what the, what the, uh, um, repercussions are if they fail it. Can you play that scenario out a bit further from a time horizon standpoint for me when you say we fail this exam, fail to get the dollar down, we revisit what we experienced in September slash October, but on steroids. Walk that path forward for me a little bit, if you don't mind. Yeah, it's it's ultimately um it drives a a forced debt deleveraging at the sovereign level. Um you're going to get if you if you get the dollar up um you know as the economy you get the dollar up if they don't you know if they don't weaken the dollar all else equal you're going to you know you continue to draw liquidity fed qt etc okay dollar goes up uh there's 13 14 trillion dollars in offshore dollar denominated debt foreigners can't print dollars however foreigners do have a piggy bank of dollars it's called their net international investment position it holds 18 trillion dollars net 40 trillion ish gross of dollar assets, uh, 7.6 trillion of that are treasuries. Um, 
of, of that net, of that 18 trillion net. And as a practical matter, you sell what you can, not necessarily what you want to. So as the dollar goes up, uh, as you know, US deficits are what they are, if we don't weaken the dollar, deficits are likely to continue to rise, growth is likely going to continue to slow, dollar goes up, squeezes offshore dollar denominated debt, foreigners sell dollar assets, including treasuries. Um, obviously, we've seen over the last three months, uh, the treasury markets aren't exactly liquid at the long end. In fact, they're very illiquid. Um, and, uh, you know, China sold 20 to $30 billion in treasuries a month in August and September per Brad Setzer. Uh, the 10-year treasury went up 80 basis points over those two months. Uh, and China has, uh, I don't know, a trillion in treasuries they can sell. So they could do that for another uh, 20 to 30 trillion um, or 20 to 30 billion a month for... 40 to 50 months mm -hmm. um, in theory, again, in theory, uh, the U.S. can't afford 80 basis points in the 10 year for very long at all, every two months. Um, we know that we we're seeing that it feeds on itself. It gets very convex. So what you end up with is a net supply situation in the treasury market that is untenable. So you get U.S. Treasury issuance deficit to two trillion plus foreign selling of call it a trillion plus Fed QT of trillion plus um you know banks have been uh, plugged with treasuries they own 4.1 trillion pensions have been plugged with it they own let's say 3.6 trillion uh it, it gets to be a very one-sided trade if the dollar rises uh and so you just go into this this feedback loop of dollar up rates up dollar up rates up dollar up, rates up until they break it with a much weaker dollar and the longer this goes and that can be done a number of different ways that can qe that can be a whole lot of different things but um that's that's what that looks like so so walk me through the playbook then to get the dollar down and are you seeing this being put in action today you, you seem super confident they're going to succeed in this mission at least in the interim correct uh, so what are you watching luke I'm fairly confident. I'm, I wouldn't go all the way to super confident. Uh, okay. I'm encouraged. I'm encouraged. I'm, I'm cautiously optimistic. We'll say. Uh, step one is is you stabilize the treasury market, right? How how have they stabilized the treasury market? Uh, three weeks ago, the Treasury Borrowing Advisory Committee released three reports in it that uh, contrary to expectations that they would not shift long end issuance into the front end. They did so. Uh, when you are having a supply demand mismatch at in, in your borrowing markets as a sovereign, there's two game plans that you can do. You can do the developed market approach, which is slash spending, or you can do the emerging market approach, which is just push all your long end borrowing to the front end and you know borrow on a payday loan, basically. And yeah. we, of course, did the lab. Uh, that helps stabilize the long end. That helps stabilize currency markets in the short run. Uh, we've seen Treasury General account run down by Yellen over the last several weeks, uh, which is a playbook she ran last September, October, uh, when Treasury markets, uh, Treasury volatility got uh, similarly uh, high uh, as it was uh, in September, October of last year, when when the Treasury market was getting close to volatility levels that uh, uh, some experts uh, suggest uh, signify a loss of control over the bond market by the Fed. Uh, we got to those levels again recently in early October. And so we saw 
Yellen went down TGA. We saw a shift in issuance. We saw eight or nine different Fed governors in the span of 10 or 12 trading days all come out and say the bond market has done our work for us. We're done. We're done hiking um, or intimate that at least, which helped put downward pressure on the dollar. Uh, and so we've seen whatever the dollar go from 107 to, you know, it's trading with a 102 handle today. That's encouraging. They're, they're, they need to do more. We had a seven-year auction today. It wasn't really good. Um, the lower the dollar goes up to a point, the better it's going to be for treasury market stability. It'll bring it lowers dollar uh, FX hedge, a uh, dollar FX hedging costs for foreign buyers of treasuries, makes the uh, FX hedge yield more attractive to foreigners. So it'll strengthen the foreign bid. Uh, it improves global growth um, up to a point. Mm -hmm. uh, all of that is good for for treasury demand. So I'm I'm in I'm just watching, you know, wrote about it at the time as they were saying it. As I, you know, hey, we wrote for clients at, at <laughs> in in early October. We're now hitting volatility levels in the treasury market, where historically more liquidity comes uh, on the dollar. And then we've kind of seen this primrose path. Uh, them follow it once again. Liquidity's clearly come in. The dollar's at 102, up down from 107. Mm -hmm. So we'll see uh, if they can continue it. Um, actually, pretty good outlook for pretty much everything but the dollar. It's it stabilizes treasury markets. It's good for stocks. It's good for commodities. It's it's good for a lot of things. So let's see if they can continue to do it. Good for tax receipts, which they desperately need. It's good for growth, etc. So, so yeah, what do you make of this? I don't know. Call it a rally in the S and P right now. I have a uh, you know a couple buddies actually that went to cash about six months ago. And they're now looking at a lot of their positions, like Nvidia, you know, DoorDash, whatever you name it. There's a handful of companies that are up thirty percent, you know, in the last uh, forty-five days. W what do you make of this rally, Luke? Um, sustainable, have legs, give you confidence. Super fragile and vulnerable. What are your thoughts? You tell me where the dollar is in six months. I'll tell you where stocks are. All uh, right. If the dollars, if the dollars at ninety ninety-five in six months, market's going way higher. Yeah. If the dollar's back at one hundred seven. This rally went very quickly. Okay. And let's say mission accomplished, dollars at 95, stocks therefore ripping. Do you think there is a return of favor to the speculative growth stocks, the same names that have carried the last decade? Or do you see a rotation to what I might call like more responsible capital allocation, uh, you know, commodities, you know, looking for value, maybe yield? What, what are your thoughts? I, I think it probably is more sort of the industrial slash gold slash commodity type stuff for two reasons. Number one, um, I think you're going to see some fundamental support for that with with you know Biden's again talking about reshoring and and convening a council to spend more money there, etc. I think from a technical slash market macro standpoint, I don't see, you know, if the dollar's at 95, growth fears and inflation weakness sequentially that has driven the long end down to, you know, whatever the 10 year at the US is at what, 4.38 or something today, 4.4, whatever. Uh, weaker dollars going to stop weaker inflation and weaker growth in its tracks. And that doesn't necessarily mean disaster for these sort of, you know, you know, knit whatever we're calling them, the Magnificent Seven or whatever, but just sort of, you know, the stuff that works really well with 
negative interest rates and slow growth, negative real interest rates and slow growth, mm -hmm. I, I think you see, you know, some stability at the long end. And, and then, you know, in a few months, weaker dollar, you're going to see the long end rise again because you're going to see growth pick back up again. You're going to see inflation pick back up. And so it, it's, I, I think that's an environment that is better for industrial gold stuff that, you know, that, that tends to do well with inflation growth and a reflation growth um, and sort of real rates rather than sort of the, the stuff that has done really well. Um, you know, some of these more bubble type type things with, with, you know, negative reels and, you know, 0% interest rates, et cetera. You think the geopolitical consequences and, and crises that are kind of blowing up all over the world right now, mainly Europe and the Middle East, impact that sentiment as well? Do you think that it creates a bit of a drive to safety or stability or cash flow? And how much do you factor in geopolitical events into your portfolio, Luke? Uh, over time, yes. I don't know, you know, in the short run, who knows? Um, mm -hmm. You know, I've been finding it very curious, right, as I'm getting, you know, the geopoliticals telling me or, you know, not the geopoliticals per se, but it's 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 the news, right, telling me that that what's going on in the Middle East, as tragic as it is, is going to spill into World War III. And then I'm watching oil every day going like, uh, like if this was going to spill into World War III, oil wouldn't fit. Oil would be at whatever it is, 78 or 74, whatever the heck it is. Um, yeah. Hmm. And to me, there's an element of all of this that is a little self-regulating, which is I think countries are jockeying for their interests at a time when there are um there are, each country has red lines that they have to accomplish as matters of national security uh but there's an economic mutually assured destruction component to it you know oil at 120 or 110 you know if we get to the point where you get a hot war um that's going to be catastrophic for a lot of things because that's going to that's going to push it's going to push all the U.S. allies into current account deficits, and they'll be dumping treasuries to buy oil, basically, to finance the current account deficits. Um, similarly, if the U.S. and China really, you know, come to a head over Taiwan. Um, I don't think people have fully thought through what that means. Like markets will stop. There, there will be capital controls. Trade dries up. Bonds are dead. I mean, you can you would be able to own bonds, but 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 you probably wouldn't be able to sell them either uh, because there would be some sort of capital controls installed because the resulting inflation of trade breaking down would make what happened in twenty 2020 twenty and twenty twenty one look like a children's tea party um, in terms of the inflation. So, do I factor it in? Yes, from the standpoint of over the long run, I think these changes um, that each nation are jockeying for in terms of their red lines, in terms of how they want the system to evolve as a matter of each's, each nation's uh, enlightened self-interest, shall we say, or matters of national security for each nation. I think over time those will resolve and, and sort of the... Um, uh, the Nash equilibrium on all those things is moving to a neutral reserve asset like a gold, like a Bitcoin. And so for me, I tend to position a lot of what I own for the long term, just unlevered and just, you know, 
put just just get there and wait 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 for it to happen and and periodically check back in on it and say hey you know is this still valid is this still moving in this direction has something changed and pay very close attention to events because there are some very big things that could change it could change that outlook uh, dramatically and and if i'm wrong that there's some sort of energy productivity miracle or something really changes geopolitically that slants it away from that those those types of things then i'll have to adjust and i'll i'll certainly I'll be wrong, um, and, and on some on some portion of that portfolio. But if it goes the other way into war, I think I'm also positioned in things that are going to do really well if there's if I'm wrong and there's war. So um, you know, so well, I, it does factor in, but I don't. I'm more watching for major what I think to be that could be major rule changes within the game we all seem to be playing. Interesting some rule changes. And I'm curious when you mentioned there's, you know, there's so many countries right now that have their red line, right? That they're either protecting or driving towards um, just to protect their their own security. Do any specifics stand out? And I mean, you mentioned the USA-China conflict and what that might mean in terms of capital controls and, and the bond market collapse, et cetera. You know, are there any red lines for China that stand out to you as most important that may, you know, push over that line? Yeah, I think if you listen to them and believe them, they say, any, you know, Taiwan is a red line. Yeah. Um, I think another big red line for them is the ability to buy energy in their own currency over time and commodities. Um, they have to do that. If they don't, they will mathematically suffer a currency crisis and an economic collapse. It's it's an easy question of of math. So that has to happen in their eyes. That's a red line for them, in my view. Um, you know, for, for Russia, I think Russia's red lines are pretty clear. Uh, they don't want missiles that can hit them in 15 seconds on their borders, which is understandable, in my opinion. Um, uh, John Kennedy certainly didn't like it in 1962, uh, when missiles were in Cuba. Yeah. Uh, and we almost went to nuclear war over that. Uh, and I think Russia's other red line is we want to get paid in real money for our commodities, uh, which is to say, we're going to settle in gold. We want to, you know, we want to, we will accept local currencies and we will net settle in gold. And, and we've been doing this and we're going to continue to do this um, at the central bank level. Uh, central bank gold reserves in Russia continued rise um, after pausing. They've been rising since 08. They paused during 2020 with negative oil prices, et cetera, et cetera. They've resumed rising um, in, in, uh, in recent quarters. Um, the U.S., our red lines, I think, are... Uh, I think we want to uh, have essentially energy hegemony over Europe. We do not want Europe being able to buy energy in their own currency. That has been made clear to me over the last 20 years. Um, quite frankly, I've been surprised how far the U.S. has been willing to go and how little, uh, what's the right word here, uh, how little the European policymakers um have stood up for themselves mm. and their people on mm. that front. Uh, I think the U.S. needs, I think within that, there's there's then it breaks down, there's two red lines in the U.S. and they're mutually exclusive. There's a group that wants the dollar system as structured since 1971 to continue. And there's a group that wants to reshore U.S. industrial production because they realize the defense industrial base has become a threat to U.S. national security because too much of it is sitting in China mm -hmm. uh, over the last 20 years. And increasingly the group that wants the defense industrial base and is willing to sacrifice the international trade value of the dollar 
and U.S. Treasury bond as the primary reserve asset. Uh, I think that that group has gained momentum over the last five years. And I think the sort of, you know, the the, the Robert Rubin, Larry Summers wing of the, of Washington that's, you know, sort of protect the dollar as structured at all costs because it's really good for Wall Street, really good for Washington, not really good for the rest of America, increasingly. Uh, I think they've lost a lot of momentum. And so there's some sort of yin and yang there. So each country, there are some... Um, yeah, there's there's some puts and takes. I didn't get into Japan, which is another big one, but but those are, I think, some of the big, um, those are some of the big ones. And I, like I said, I think the Nash equilibrium is moving to a system where you trade energy in every currency, or at least the SDR five, and you settle on a net basis in goods and coal, uh, and and that's what the world looks like. It's moving toward uh, amidst a lot of noise, a lot of volatility. Um, Etc. Uh, but that can change. What's the most common pushback you get from the the concept of de-dollarization? And I want to ask because you brought up, you know, one of China's red lines is being able to buy commodities uh, in their own currency. Uh, one of Russia's red lines is being able to sell their commodities for real money. Um, you can maybe say real money for China as well. They're happy to buy if it's in real money. I'm very curious about their gold stores, but. What's one of the most common pushbacks you get against the trend of de-dollarization, Luke? It's usually a misperception. Um, I get the, hey, well, the dollar's still used for 88% of global financial transactions. Okay. And it's like, yeah, and so what? Um, the key number is not what you pay in, it's what you settle. And since 2014, global central banks have stopped sterilizing U.S. deficits. The foreign, foreign central bank's holdings of treasury bonds stopped growing in 2014. From 2002 to 2014, global central bank holdings of treasuries at the FX reserve level, as reported to the IMF, uh, were equivalent to about 52% of the aggregate increase, net increase in U.S. federal debt for those 12 years. And since then, it's less than 0%. They have not bought a single treasury bond on net since 2014. Now, what have they bought? Well, their gold holdings are up $400 billion in that time, with a lot of it done in the last two, three years. Um, so to me, this, you know, there's no de-dollarization. Look, the dollar's still 90% of transactions. The misperception is, is that, well, if they're paying in dollars, you haven't de-dollarized. Mm sort of, and I can see somewhat where they're coming from in terms of the pipes, but the pipes will change with digital currencies. The digital yuan, they're not going to need to use, with CBDCs, they're not going to need to use the US dollar pipes. And I think that freaks out some people in, in the West, by the way, but that's that's a separate issue. Uh, what the pushback misses is that when China, who, oh, by the way, is a bigger trading partner with Saudi, than the EU and US combined. When they when they transact, let's say they do it all in dollars. I don't think they're doing it all in dollars, but let's say they, they are doing it all, and they'll do it in dollars forevermore. Let's say that that'll never change. What you're seeing happen is China gets dollars from the US. We run, they, we run, they run a surplus against the United States. They pay for oil from Saudi. Let's say it's all in dollars forevermore. The Saudis then are taking those dollars and they're buying Chinese goods. 
to improve their own. You know, when you see China, uh, Saudi building new refineries in JVs with China, when you see Saudi buying golf tours, when you see Saudi buying Mbappe, you know, and paying him a gazillion dollars to play soccer, when you see ports, uh, when you everything they're doing, water purification, all of these things are not financing the United States government. Because in a lot of cases, China's making the, the components. Because we don't make components anymore. We, we make dollars, bonds, and weapons. Mm-hmm. It's a vast oversimplification, but it's not that much of an oversimplification. Mm-hmm. Um, so then who finances U.S. deficits as U.S. deficits are secularly rising because of demographics? Well, since 2014, it's one of two people. It's either the global private sector, in which case we get the dollar rising, and then we get rates rising, and we go into the sort of the you know problem we started off the show with, or the Fed or one of their proxies, you know SLR exemptions on the U.S. banking system, which is just Fed QE through the banks, for example, uh, or the Fed does, and then we get the dollar down and everything else up, and so there's this misperception that hey, the fact that ninety percent of financial transactions are still being done in dollars and that the dollar is rising and rates are rising in the U.S. that's proof of de-dollarization. It's actually not proof de-dollarization. It's actually proof de-dollarization is happening. It's because as the U.S. runs these um, uh, runs these these deficits and these deficits are not sterilized at the central bank level. The central bank level is really the key in my view. It's not ninety percent of global transactions. What are central banks net settling in? They're not selling in dollars anymore. They're selling in gold. And you can see it in their balance sheet. Their holdings of treasury bonds have not risen in nine years, going on 10 years. They have risen in gold. They are doing more deals in commodities around the world in local currency. Uh, that's irrefutable. It'll be slow and transitional. And oh, by the way, as it happens, paradoxically, it sends the dollar up, not down, which th- that part confuses a lot of people. And I understand why, It's but it, it's a little counterintuitive. A lot of it ties back to what I talked about at the beginning, which is there's $13, $14 trillion in offshore dollar-denominated debt. If you the oil market's a two and a half, two, two and a half trillion dollar annual market, you take just a little bit of dollar flow away from the oil market, put it into yuan, you're gonna pull just a little bit of supply away from the dollar market. And you're gonna against very big demand for servicing, right? $13, $14 trillion in debt. And you're going to add just a little bit of supply of yuan into a market where there's really no incipient demand because there's no yuan loans outstanding, by and large. And so a little bit more supply of yuan when there's not a lot of demand, what happens to the price of yuan? It goes down against the dollar. If you take away a little bit of dollar supply where there's very big demand, what happens to the price of the dollar? It goes up. So there's a lot of misperceptions around, you know, all of the flows and all of the impacts, the bottom line is that it's absolutely happening. Commodity markets are being de-dollarized. Global central banks are no longer sterilizing U.S. deficits and haven't been for nearly a decade. They're buying gold instead of treasuries. And I think the world's going to keep moving in that direction. And it's a little bit of a spur and break of like, okay, this process is happening very steadily, maybe even accelerating. But as it does, once the dollar gets high enough that it creates a problem, then the Fed and other authorities have to step in and inject dollar liquidity, get it back down, et cetera. So that's that's the biggest misperception. Um, uh, and, you know, I suspect that it's going to continue. And is part of that when somebody throws a number at you, like, oh, you know, U.S. dollar still accounts for 88% of global trade. You know, what's more important, the percent or the trajectory? You know, and, and does that 
come into the conversation ever. It's 88% today, but what was it 15 years ago, you know, or five, right? What they pay in is irrelevant, right? Because it's just yeah, script, right? You and I could pay you in a wooden nickel, yeah. you know? Um, to me, it's about what, what we're storing our savings in, okay. right? When you think about, when you think about an inflation, the great inflations are all about what? They're all about people not wanting to hold the currency. De-dollarization or central banks no longer wanting to hold dollars. They're holding gold instead of treasuries. Their, their gold reserves are rising. Their treasury reserves are not. And this, by virtue of the structure of the system, leads to paradoxical symptoms, which is the dollar goes up, rates go up, and until it breaks something. And then they come in with, with more dollar liquidity. They, the Fed, um, or increasingly... <laughs> we get what we got earlier this year, which was Argentina goes, oops, we're out of dollar reserves. IMF, we owe you money, help us. And historically, that was okay. Argentina goes into hyperinflation, and they already have inflationary problems, but they go, their currency goes to friggin' zero until, you know, there is demand for it, whatever. What happened this time? China came in and said, no, 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 allow us hmm. here. Take our renminbi swap lines. Take our yuan swap lines. And the IMF accepted them. The IMF accepted them. And I don't think people, I don't think people have, um, a lot of, I don't think some people have appreciated the importance of that. You know, you'll hear, you know, Kyle Bass and others say, oh, the yuan's wampum. Okay. Why'd the IMF take them? Did they convert them into dollars? Sure. Possibly. I don't know. But again, don't go that far. The IMF took yuan in lieu of dollars. Keep saying it until you hear it. Like, how can you even deny that, that like some level of de-dollarization is happening? And the point here is, is that once that dollar squeeze goes higher as a result of de-dollarization, China's over there waiting in the wings with yuan swap lines going, hey, mm. we'll get you out of this. All we need is future supply of oil. We'll take this, you know, when, when you see China sign a deal with Qatar, 27-year gas supplies, 27 years. In the old, the way system used to work was China would hold treasuries to hold them over for their gas needs for the next 27 years. 27-year gas supply deals just cutting out the middleman. They're not storing the supplies in dollars anymore. They're supplies are stored in commodities and gold. Yeah. Okay. Okay. I, I have to ask you a question that might be sort of juvenile, Luke, but, you know, for for China to execute this, as you said, you know, all they need is future supply of, of energy, right? You know, as an example, the 27 year deal with Qatar. Why is that the case? Why is what what's most important for them to accomplish moving the Yuan swap line model forward, future supply of energy? Talk to me about that relationship. Because without energy, the whole thing breaks down, right? I mean, energy is the base layer to every economy. Um, you can't grow without energy. Um, Practically speaking, China's short energy. And, you know, something that has been laid out by many, including Kyle Bass, that I, I, I agree with on this front is, is, you know, he laid this out in 2017 or 2019. Hey, China uses more and more and more oil. And oil is only priced in dollars, used to only be priced in dollars. And so if you have a case where China buys more and more oil and the price of oil goes up over time, and it's only priced in dollars, sooner or later, their energy needs are going to reduce their dollar holdings down to zero. 
And as it gets close to that, they will have a currency crisis like Southeast Asia in the late 1990s. And then they will have to either shrink their economy to, re you know, to reduce oil usage or massively devalue their currency, leading to high rates of inflation to also reduce. So basically, the energy markets regulated global growth via the dollar, via the monopoly on the dollar. And so what Yuan Energy does is something that has never been an option in the post-World War II era, which is, you know, every other country in that position, we're using more and more oil, oil is only priced in dollars, we have a finite amount of dollars as energy prices go up and our energy volumes go up, we're going to run out of dollars and we have a crisis. There was always one or two options, devalue the currency or slow the economy, stop using so much energy. Those are the choices. Now there's a third choice. We're just going to buy more than you want and we will settle it on a net basis in Chinese goods and in gold that floats in yuan. So suddenly people say, well, why would anyone hold yuan? Well, because China is the factory of the world. So number one, you know, presumably the Chinese will over time take more and more of their own currency for the stuff they make. Mm -hmm. And number two, the currency, when you, when you bring gold into it, when it floats in yuan terms is essentially the Chinese saying, listen, it's, it's our currency and it's our problem as opposed to the American system, which is it's our currency and it's your, but it's your problem. If you call up a 200 day moving average of the price of gold in Chinese yuan terms, it's beautiful. It's like a friggin' 40 degree line up into mm. the right. So you do deals in yuan, why would I take yuan? It's like the easiest sales job in history. I'm a foreign minister of some, you know, setting aside the politics because they're messy. Strictly from an economic standpoint, I am the foreign minister of some oil producing country the economic minister and the Chinese come to me and say, I want to buy oil from you in Yuan. And I say, okay, I take your Yuan, then what do I do with it? And they sort of on this hand, they pull out all of the stuff they make. And they're like, it's so good for Huawei 5G. It's good for all this stuff you're making anyway. We'll make that for you. Like, okay, well, what if I have anything left over? They go, well, here, let me show you this. This is the chart of gold in mm -hmm. Yuan terms. It's up and to the right. And so anything you can't find on our shopping list on this side in Yuan, just put it in gold. And over five-year period, your yuan purchasing power is going to rise in gold terms, as opposed to treasury bonds, which have now actually collapsed over the last 20 years in real value. Uh, they're, they're, uh, it's a very compelling case. Now, like I said, that sets aside the politics of it all, right? Is mm. yeah, The Americans might be in the next room with a proverbial or literal gun at my head, and mm -hmm. that certainly can change things. But from a purely economic standpoint, that's what's happening. It has been happening for over a decade. Um, it's very easy to see if you if you if you watch it. And once you start seeing it, you can't unsee it. You see it over and over and over and over. When you when you uh, pull up the uh, the metaphor, the Americans might be in the next room with a gun to my head, preventing you know us from participating in <laughs> what, what otherwise is a perfectly logical trade. Um, sure, I sell my commodities for yuan. I, I buy the stuff I need that's made in the factory of the world. If not, I, I park it in gold with that beautiful um, uh, preservation of my purchasing power, et cetera. Um, is that related to, from your perspective, one of the Americans' red lines being maintaining energy hegemony in Europe? You know, is that the proverbial gun to Europe's head? And if they lose that, hegemony, they lose that influence? Are those two things related? Great question. I, I In short, yes. Um, ultimately, 
it's, you know, what's been going on in Europe, I think is a, you know, the, the, the grand chessboard with Brzezinski uh, that he wrote in 1997. Uh, it goes back to McKinder in, I don't know, whenever, late 1800s, early 1900s, I should know the date, I don't, when he published his theory of the world island, right? Whoever controls the world island, Eurasia controls the world. Uh, and so I think, I think there is a school of thought in Washington that if, and I think this school of thought has been around a long, long time, right? You go back to, uh, I can't think of, I guess it was Ismay, Colonel Ismay, uh, in, in England, right? The, the, the point of NATO is to keep the Americans in, <laughs> the Russians out, and the Germans down. Um, <laughs> that's, uh, it's been sort of foreign policy forever uh, to try to prevent Russian commodities from marrying up with German and, and French industry. Because if it is, it... it it, it competes with the United States extremely effectively. Um, and I think we've been watching that 100-plus-year-old story play out over the last five, ten years. Um, you know, be these sort of gas pipeline wars. <laughs> um, is it the right thing to do for us? Um, I'm not sure. It's the right thing to do for the dollar as structured as it's been structured since 71. It's not the right thing to do if you want to reshore industry, because what we've been doing is cutting off Russian energy from Europe, redirecting it to China, making it very, very cheap for China. So now China has a competitive advantage vis-a-vis -vis the world. Yeah. Locking it in via pipeline. Once it's locked in via pipeline, it, you know, barring a war, it ain't gonna stop flowing. Um, and then draining our natural gas surpluses that we could be using to compete very effectively industrially and rebuild our business, our, our, our domestic industrial base, uh, converting it into LNG, which is expensive, and then shipping it to Europe uh, and making our coastal cities compete on global markets. So you're basically increasing u.s energy costs domestically to keep the russians out of europe pushing the russians to china um it, it's yeah it's higher inflation over time in the u.s because otherwise our energy costs particularly vis-a-vis -vis gas could be a lot lower um so is, is it all related yes is the short answer um there is some element of it where it is around supporting the dollar. Um, and to your point, everything that has transpired with that over the last however long has been very good for sort of the dollar wing of Washington, right? The What's good for the dollar is good for Wall Street, it's good for Washington, D.C. It's not really good for the rest of America, well, at least on balance. But um, who cares uh, is sort of their attitude. Um, if you want to reshore industrial production in a major way, you need cheap energy feedstock. And the last thing you would want to do is run pipeline to Houston and turn it into LNG and ship it to the Europeans. You'd want to keep it here, rebuild factories, etc. So, you know, we'll see. There's been a little bit of that as well. It hasn't been enough, but we'll see over the next few years if it, if it builds some momentum.
you know, it, it adds to your your case about what China needs as a future supply of energy. You touched on Qatar, you know, and ov- obviously the relationship with Russia acts. Sorry, yes, the relationship with Russia access to their energy, and I think I probably read in one of your newsletters. You know, this winter they're accessing Russian natural gas at fifty percent the cost that Europeans are. Um, special deals like this make a massive difference. When you think about that picture and the trajectory of, um, I don't know, just like deals like this that really strengthen China's position globally. Uh, And then one of their red lines is Taiwan. Can the US, so, so if Taiwan is a red line for China, is Taiwan a red line for the US? Can they afford to have that be a red line right now or are they too vulnerable and too overstretched already and that's maybe something they'd have to let go what are your thoughts on that i think from a supply standpoint it is a red line for the us as well it's a great point um when you look at you know anyone who hasn't read chris miller's book chip wars really ought to it's excellent um and it, it runs through the history of the chip industry uh, all the way up to the modern day and sort of the primacy of of Taiwan. And it gives you, you get done reading the book and you realize that, you know, <laughs> the, the the whole Taiwan thing has like zero to do with freedom and any of these other, you know, BS reasons they give us when this stuff. It's chips, full stop. We couldn't care less if they were, you know, run by whatever. It's chips and it's access to chips. Is it a red line? So, yeah, absolutely. It's a red line particularly given sort of, you know, American military technical primacy still um, what is the, in, in the needs of chips. Um, I mean, there was a white paper. This is incredible. There was a white paper out in 2021 from one of the Army War Colleges or one of the think tanks looking at, at um, you know, sort of we had to destroy the village to save it logic, literally running scenarios of, you know, is there a scenario where it makes more sense to destroy Taiwan than let it fall into Chinese hands? Wild. Uh, Right? Yeah. So, and again, maybe in a vacuum, I don't know. Mm -hmm. um, But that tells you it's a red line. Yeah. You know, and there's not a lot of thought given. Okay. You know, the day that that happens, you understand the bond market's done, right? Like who owns a bond when Taiwan's gone, right? Supply chains are literally going to stop. Um, so it, it it's a red line. Uh, can we do anything about it? That's a question better left to somebody else. I've read yes and no, and who knows? Um, certainly the publicly available stuff that you get from, from consultants like Rand, et cetera, very clearly point out a progression over the last 15 to 20 years where it used to be like, yeah, we win going away to like, you know, toss a coin. You know, if there was a conflict six, 7,000 miles, whatever it is from U.S. borders uh, in, in and around Taiwan. So uh, it's a red line. Yeah, that makes sense. And that book, because people are going to ask in the comments, Chris Miller, and it was called Chip Wars? Chip Wars, yeah. Chip yeah, Wars. It's, a, it's a great it's a great book. It's a really important book. It's easy to read. Um, it reads actually very much like a, you know, sort of like an adventure novel or a spy novel, if you will. Uh, it's, it's pretty cool about the development of the chip industry. And and, and from very much a, um, a layman's term, which I'm, I'm uh, a total layman in the chip uh, you know, industry, uh, is really enjoyable. And it's very, very informative. I think very important. 
What's your take? Do you have a take on, on I have to ask, because you mentioned Larry Summers earlier when we were talking about a couple of the red lines that the U.S. has, and, and the second was sort of this uh, battle between the 1971ers, call them, you know, the, the that dollar system, and um, and those that are looking for moving the, the defense industrial base from China back to the U.S. and how those two things are opposed. I think you dropped Larry Summers' name as one of those who's more of an advocate for the 1971-style dollar system. Uh, curious to me that um, President Biden met with President Xi in San Francisco. Two days later, Altman gets the boot from OpenAI. Obviously, hilarious backlash in-house, probably a lot of conversations that I'll never be privy to, but he's reinstated along with Larry Summers now on the board. And you know, if there's ever been a company that strikes me as uh, exclamation mark in terms of importance to national security, like OpenAI might be it, right? Uh, what's your take on that scenario as you understand it? Uh, I don't have, I, I don't, I'm not close enough to have a strong opinion other than to say, I agree with you that to me there, it, it, it smacks of some sort of national security dynamic um particularly around the larry summers news i mean he's mm. you know he's 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 pretty connected so um yeah the timing the location all of it you know in terms of san francisco that that they were all in their meeting all of that did not escape my attention i just don't have enough information or background to have a strong opinion on it one way or another yeah, cool. Okay. Yeah. And I'm I'm just speculating, but when I read through it and actually Dr. Pippa Malgren had some excellent uh, op-eds covering that as it was unfolding and maybe painting the case that Summers is kind of the US lane claim, right? Putting an adult in the room as she described it actually. Um <laughs> yeah, it's uh, <laughs> adult maybe. Yes, yeah. Yeah, I'm both. <laughs> I'll leave that. Uh, it's <laughs> putting an insider in the room for sure. Yeah, yeah, better words. Okay, awesome. I want to wrap it up with, uh, you know, what can you share and where you've allocated capital right now for, you know, I know you're a long-term thinker as as am I, my audience is long-term value investors, Luke. So um, given, you know, fr framing the portfolio and the conversation we just had, you know, talk to me a little bit about how you've allocated capital as of today. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I've been, for most of this year, haven't moved a whole lot around. I've been significantly overweight gold, significantly overweight Bitcoin, significantly overweight short-term U.S. Treasuries, um, sort of two years and in. Um, I've been significantly overweight cash for most of the year, uh, beginning in, call it early to mid-October. I began shifting some of that cash actually more into... Uh, <laughs> gold and Bitcoin on weakness hmm. uh, in those. Uh, it's they're both pretty heavy positions for me because to me it's just I think about it as either they're going to weaken the dollar or they're not. And if they do, it's going to work. And if they don't, the crisis that ensues will be sharp and pronounced in all likelihood. And quickly force them to weaken the dollar, uh, mm -hmm. uh, you know, chasing them to, to weaken the dollar meaningfully and probably more than they would have um, had they just done it in the first place. So I, I like those. Uh, uh, I have been, was negative on long-term bonds for most of the year. I'm sort of like, eh, you know, I didn't catch this, this rally here. 
I'm not one of those who thinks, you know, the long, you know, the 10 years going back to two or three, I, I think, um, I, I think we're in a higher for longer regime. I think ultimately, so I don't know that there, I don't feel like there's real value in long-term sovereign debt here, particularly after this, this sort of bounce higher in the price, lower in the yields. Um, I still like oil. Um, I think oil uh, and oil related names, uh, again, they've had a bad couple of months. Uh, with that said, it's been very interesting to me see how badly the alternative energy space has done uh, with positive real rates. And that's, I think, noteworthy. Uh, a lot of this stuff doesn't make sense at four or 5% rates. Mm-hmm. And if that's the case, that sooner or later is going to, I think, filter its way into long-term oil and sort of fossil fuel demand. Uh, probably benefits nuclear as well. I'm not really there uh, in terms yeah. of uranium. Um, and I still have a, a pretty good uh, position, uh, mainly through private equity investments in um, electrical infrastructure in the United States. Sort of boring, generation agnostic metal stuff. Uh, and it's, I, I think, ultimately, the electrical grid in the U.S. is going to get revamped one way or another. It's already started to some degree, but I think it's, I think it's a, there's a long runway, I think, on it over the next 10 to 20 years. And, and I'm looking to be long-term greedy, not really as a trade. So those are some of the things uh, I'm, I'm thinking about. Basically, I don't think I finished the thought. As the alternatives get shown to not work at 4 or 5% rates, uh, I think you'll see oil demand, sort of terminal oil demand, these peak oil demand numbers we get from the IEA and EIA periodically, those numbers are too low. Those numbers are going to have to get revised higher, demand numbers globally uh, over, uh, I don't know, six months, 12 months, you know, setting aside sort of any cycle, just secularly. So I still think oil does well over time as well. Yeah. Okay. Okay. And so in, in the core there, highly liquid and highly agile, right? Gold, Bitcoin, short-term treasuries, cash, you're ready for anything. I like that. Um, okay. Awesome. Look, Luke. Always great having you on the show, man. I, I love chatting with you. Um, I want to point everybody to to your site, Forest for the Trees. It's FFTT.LLC or F... Uh, dash LLC, FFTT-LLC.com. Okay. And the Tree Rings Report, by the way, is a great place for anybody to start. This is a weekly report. I get it every Friday. I've said this before, Luke. It's without question the smartest investment anybody who cares about macro finance, the markets can make because it's a comprehensive breakdown of like the 10 to 12 most significant headlines that you and your team have seen. And then you give your summary, right? What really matters here? What is the tree ring in this headline? Uh, And there's tons of levels, there's some levels above that if you want to go deeper uh, with Luke, but it's, it's the highest quality stuff out there. I highly recommend everybody check that out. So uh, appreciate your time. Appreciate that. No, thank you very much. I appreciate that. And uh, it's always fun catching up. So I enjoyed it. Thanks for having me on again, Jay. Of course, man. All right. Till next time. If you enjoy my content, do me a favor, follow or subscribe to this podcast, drop me a rating and a review and share this with a friend. All of these things allow me to get bigger and better guests on the show. Now you can catch me all over social media at jmartinbc. Thanks for tuning in.